It is good to have you with us who are visitors. And for some of you, it may be that the subject this morning is a new one to you, or at least the portion of this doctrine of Christian hope which we intend to explore this morning because this is the uh, continuance and hopefully the conclusion of a what it became a brief series of messages on the subject of hope, the Christian hope. And I trust that if you've not been in on the earlier sermons that you will heed a brief review of where we've come so that this morning we may introduce to you this wonderful subject of the cultivation of Christian hope. But in order to prepare our hearts for the exposition, turn with me, please, again in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Now, I want you to do that with your, and put your thumb in there or your finger in there, and then I want you to brush across two or three other verses with me in the New Testament to set our hearts for this particular passage. So keep that page with your finger and turn back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 24 of Romans 8. We'll read two verses. Romans 8, 24. For in hope were we saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for that which he sees? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with steadfastness or patient endurance wait for it. And then turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 17. Hebrews six seventeen, Wherein God, being minded to show more abundantly unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel interposed with an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which we have, which hope we have, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and entering into that which is within the veil, whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then back to Colossians chapter 3. Remembering in your reading of Romans 8, 24 and 25, that the apostles said that if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. And in that statement, he implies our definition of the word hope. The Christian definition for hope, biblical hope, is something that is sure and steadfast 
so that when we have it, we will endure whatever comes our way in this life, waiting to grasp that thing for which we hope. It is a strong word, and the texts we've read have said it. But that leads us to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read an extended portion of Scripture, because I think the whole passage needs to be seen in its context to help us. Verse 1. If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth. For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall you also with him be manifested in glory. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake comes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Wherein you also once walked when you lived in these things, but now do you also put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his doings, and have put on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him where there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as God's elect, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a complaint against any, even as the Lord forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also you were called in one body. And be you thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Please again, let's bow together. And pray. O God of power, God of grace, God of long-suffering, God of compassion for your needy people, come now and help me preach as I ought to preach your word and help us hear as we ought to hear the word of our Redeemer. Open the ears of the sinner's heart that he may hear these things and see 
that he is outside the hope about which we speak. And melt him and break him and humble him and make him to see his dangerous, precarious position and make him also to see his hope in the Lord Jesus and give him grace to run today to Christ and save him from his sins. Lord, build this church up in a strong hope. May these things find a resting place in our hearts. May we not be able easily to distract ourselves. May you preserve us from uh, lazy hearing, from negligence in the attendance of children, from easy uh, divergence from our concentration. May you focus us and rivet us and help us, Lord. Remember that these are the words of life, that this is your appointed means for our soul's salvation. Come near to us and do not render to us what we've deserved, but according to the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. Bless us now in the ministry of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, brethren, to refresh your memory and bring you to where we are today, I review briefly what we've seen in the biblical doctrine of Christian hope. We stated at the outset of this series that the perpetual posture of God's saints is that of waiting in hope. We are saved in hope. We are saved for a life of hope. It was not God's intention when he saved us to give us everything in our hands that we desire. Nor everything that we're going to have. God saved us in a situation in which the predominant characteristic of our life, among other things, is that of waiting. Waiting in hope. Not seeing what we hope for. Not having it in our hands but waiting for it. There are realities that we face in this world which if we receive them wrongly or misunderstand them can cause us to stumble and cast our faith aside. And so in order to keep us from stumbling, God has given us strong hope through which when we're tempted to throw in the towel, we do not throw in the towel. Our faith endures because it's undergirded by hope. We're saved in hope. Trouble, anguish from Romans 8.35, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life with all its upheavals, pressures and tensions, angels, principalities, present distresses and dangers, future cataclysms and powers, all the, the sin from chapter 7 of Romans, described in the heart of every believer, all the perishing bodies that are described in chapter 8 as the whole creation and we with it are dying, all of that, none of that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the thing that makes us able so confidently to, to state such a thing is the doctrine of hope. The fact that in our hearts we've laid hold with a strong confidence and that refuge to which we fled. And it has become the anchor to our souls. And so we stated the reason that the saint is living constantly in a posture of waiting in hope. And the reason is twofold. First, we do not here and now possess what we will then and there possess. There is laid up for us in heaven that which we anticipate. We do not possess it now. It is laid up there. It is to that place we look 
And it is from that which we wait for a Savior who will come and fashion our vile body into the likeness of his glorious body. But not only do we not here and now possess what we will not then and there possess, we do not here and now possess what we desire to possess. It is that we groan within ourselves, waiting with the rest of creation for the redemption of the body, the manifestation of the sons of God. Brethren, it is normal for a Christian to have a holy dissatisfaction with this current status. Not to be discontent with what God has given, but to long for and groan within himself for that which God has promised and has not yet delivered. We do not possess it here and now. It is ours then and there. And we long to have that for which we have been saved and for which our salvation has been begun. And then, having stated the reason that this is the normal posture of the saint of God in this world, we also saw something of the importance of this doctrine, a vital doctrine for our time. There may no doubt be someone here this morning who knows not what the word hope means. Maybe all you know is the Cinderella kind of hope, where she sings, a dream is a wish the heart makes. And that's the extent, a Disney cartoon is the warmest feeling that some people have ever had. They, they look to those things as the sweetest things in the world. Or as Scarlett O'Hara in her perpetual tomorrow. Always tomorrow. Always tomorrow. But never with a strong, firm, grounded confidence that what she's wishing for will really come to pass. There may be somebody here today for whom hope has been removed in its strength. You live for today. You dread death above everything else. You frantically run after every pleasure, every portion of status, every bit of fame that you can find. And then when these things fail you, they perish in a sea of despair and bitterness. And you are left alone, rotten and discouraged and disillusioned because life didn't give you what you hoped it would. The doctrines of heaven, future judgment, establishment of righteousness in a new heaven and a new earth, all so precious to believers in Christ, are spurned, ignored, or even scoffed at in our generation. The doctrine of Christian hope is a lost doctrine largely in our day. And it's a vital doctrine and needs to be reasserted to the mind of a generation who do not look for the world to come, but who live for the world that is passing away. How foolish it is. That they give up their everlasting hope to hold to a few trinkets and passing things. How utterly pitiful it is to watch them run the way they run. Go to such energy. Go to such distress. Make their bodies sick and their minds worried over things that will not last. And before their lifetime, ordinarily either rust or moth eat them or thieves steal them. And they continue to heap them up. And continue to resent the fact that those things never satisfy. And some even blame God that this world is such a disappointing place. But you see, the gospel brings hope to men's heart. It is saturated in hope. The Christian, the true Christian, is asked by a carnal world to explain the reason for the hope that's within him. And you know why they ask him? It is because this is what distinguishes him from the rest. This is what they notice. 
It is this hope that they see in the Christian that makes them surprised and astounded. First, as we've read in First Peter, that he no longer runs after the riotous living that he used to run in. They're, they think you're strange. You're not doing that anymore. Why? How? What kind of fool would it be to give up all this fun? And they don't understand that you found something much better. Something that cannot, cannot even be compared with that. And even the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be re compared to the glory that shall be revealed. And so they ask, what is the reason for this hope that is within you? They want to understand what makes you tick. How can you do without all the things they think are necessary to happiness and peace? And how can you seem still to be happy and at peace? How can you endure persecution and still seem to be well put together, well controlled, well ordered on the job? They ask the real Christian about the reason for the hope. In the neighborhood, they wonder what makes you different. This is it. The hope that's within you. It makes you act in their mind irrationally. It makes you seem like a fool to them. They are anchored in this world. You have your eyes on another world. And they feel sorry for you. They look down upon you. They even persecute you. Some of your own household put you down for this foolish hope. And yet it becomes the very backbone of your Christian witness. And the very manner and method by which you bring people to Christ in answering their queries. But then we noted many texts of Scripture... That supported this doctrine. And we'll not repeat them all this morning. But from the Psalms. Many from the epistles. And especially from the book of Hebrews. And most especially from Hebrews chapter 11. How that all the saints of all time. Have lived for something in the future. They've made their decisions. For future things. They've denied present privileges. In order to have lasting privileges. They denied the temporal in order to obtain the eternal. They denied the world in order to obtain heaven. And it's the mark of the faithful all through the years that they give up this to have that. They give what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose rather than giving what they cannot lose to gain what they cannot keep. And it distinguishes the saints. And we saw text after text in our Bibles, even since I preached those sermons that day, I've, I've come to see more and more that it's hard to read through two or three pages of the Bible without seeing the doctrine of Christian hope virtually jumping off the page. It's a blessed and central Christian doctrine. Well, then we defined it. Having read the texts, we defined Christian hope. And I've already hinted at it, but it is this. It is not mere wishful thinking. It is not Cinderella or Scarlet O'Hara. It is not a perpetual hope so tomorrow. Maybe things will work out. But it is this. It is the firm confidence that God will complete in perfection the work of our salvation, which he has promised and begun in Christ. Firm confidence that God will complete in perfection our salvation, which he's promised and which he's begun in Christ. Now, that's just snow and ice sliding off the roof, brethren. For you that don't know that, it's, it's okay. There's no, nothing's happening that should distract you. So rivet the mind back on the material. The firm confidence that God, not the wishful thinking, not the thinking that it'll all work out in the end. Just believe, as we hear about around holidays and some of the holiday movies, just keep on believing. Believing what? Don't give up hope. Hope in what? 
Don't give up the faith. And we hear that from, from people that don't even believe there's a God. Keep the faith, baby. What do they mean? They have no faith. They believe in nothing but themselves. But the Christian believes in much more. He doesn't even believe in himself. He believes in God. And he has a firm confidence that God will complete what the Christian in himself can never complete. And he will complete it in perfection. Now notice the definition. The firm confidence that God will complete in perfection the work of our salvation. It is a particular thing that we love and hope for. It is not that we just hope that someday we'll be given all the things we've always wanted and therefore we trust God to give it. It is not that God is a means to achieving our worldly ends. It is not that God one day, he'll get those bad people and then we'll get to do what we deserve to all along to do. It is not that God one day will set us up on a gravy train because we are so worthy of it. It is not that we've decided a few things that would make us happy and we've decided to send our gift list to God and one day he's going to give it. No, no. It is that God will complete according to his purpose and his agenda to his glory, our salvation. Not just to give us the things that are killing us in this world for eternity, but to give us the things that will cause us to live for eternity. All things pertaining to life and godliness. So those that have their hope set on anything other than God's salvation from their sins, from the power, from the penalty, and from the very presence of sin, they have their hope set on that which God has never promised. There is no such thing coming. There is not a perpetual fly fishing trip up in glory land. There is not the uh, getting rid of all the dis discomforts of life without regard to God. There's not a mansion in heaven where you can live and have servants and have food and have drink and have pleasures whether God's there or not. That's not the picture. The abiding places in heaven are in the presence of a holy God. What makes heaven precious to the saints is that Jesus will be there. What makes heaven precious to the saints is that their righteousness reigns. There's no iniquity. There's no sin. And therefore God in all his glory will be seen unmitigated by man's rebellion and by the devil's anger. All of that will be done away. And the saints that love that will rejoice in it. The man that doesn't look for that, hope in that, and love that will not have that. He will not be there. So it's the firm confidence that God will complete our salvation as he's promised and begun. And then this firm confidence leads us to see, see the ground of our hope. Note, brethren, our hope is not grounded in our righteousness, our strength, our ability to maintain ourselves, or our present circumstances. You see, this is not a hope that goes up and down, or ought to go up and down, according to our current situation. Your job status, your childbearing ability, your ability to get a spouse, your uh, present circumstantial happiness, your health. These are not things that ought to affect this thing. This hope is objectively grounded in God's word and in Christ's work. It is not grounded in us. It is grounded in God. He has an oath bound promise to fulfill our salvation. He has sent his son to save us. His son has fulfilled his duties as God's covenantal mediator. God has spoken 
and Christ has acted. And in these two things, we have confidence that we shall arrive safe and holy in heaven at the last day. We wait upon God. We look to God. We trust in God. Our hope is in God, in what He's promised and in what He's done in His Son. It is through His death, His resurrection, His ascension and present continued intercession that we hope. Not in our goodness. We don't say to our friends, we trust that because you be good, you'll get to go to heaven. We don't teach our children, be good and Jesus will let you into his house later. We don't teach our children such a myth and such a lie and destroy their souls through ever. We teach them what's true. We teach them that unless they repent of their sin, come to Christ alone and trust in Christ with a whole heart, they cannot be saved. We teach all those to whom we witness the facts apart from which they cannot be saved. We don't love their souls when we pare down the doctrine. We're not helping them when we take away the fact that only in Christ as a sin bearer can men be saved. We preach it because our hope is in him. We must turn away from ourselves and look to him. And then in the next place, obviously, it becomes easy to see some of the benefits of such a hope. And we saw at least three of them. We listed first that with such a hope, the saint has consolation in the midst of affliction. We rejoice in hope, the scriptures say. We rejoice in tribulations because the hope that is ours never disappoints us. So even when trouble comes, we rejoice because hope is our portion and our possession. We have consolation in the midst of affliction. We have sanctification in the presence of temptation. Who that has this hope in him purifies himself. Brethren, the reason some of you are not mortifying some of your sins is because your hope is not well developed in Christ. You do not look to Christ's coming. You do not think on it. You do not rejoice in it and therefore you're not purifying yourself. He that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he's pure. And the standard is the highest, and the achievement is the noblest, because the hope is in Christ, and I long to see him, and to have what will happen when he comes. So it's a sanctifying thing in the presence of temptation. And third, we saw that it's, and it, it gives us the ability to endure in the face of delay. Oftentimes, is it not so? That the saint asks of God things and it seems that God doesn't hear. Oftentimes we pray for years for the saving of someone or the working of God. Some of us are broken and fearful for our nation. Some of us do not believe America is, is, uh, is insulated against disaster. Some of us do not believe that this country has a guaranteed future. Some of us have looked at history. We've read history. We're not ignorant. We've read the word of God. We know the ways of God. And we expect the wrath of God as it's already exposed on our land. And we grieve at how many don't want to be preached to. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want authority over their consciences. They resist vigorous preaching. They re resist conscience-searching preaching. They select teachers to tickle their ears because they've turned away from the truth. And many of us wonder, Lord, how long? Lord, when will they act as though the Word of God is their life and portion? 
When will they act as though they care? When will they deny themselves? When will they sacrifice for the church of Christ? When will they lay aside their conveniences to serve Christ? And we grieve over it and wonder, when is God going to answer our prayers? Throughout history, saints have had that experience. The prophets represented through the old covenant. The martyrs through the new. The, the, the saints of God wonder, when is God going to act? When is Jesus going to come? And the scoffers say, where is the sign of his coming? Things continue on as they did from the beginning. That's what they say. And sometimes we're tempted to say, is it worth it? Lord, are you coming? Lord, is it worth it? Is what I've sacrificed for little principles. Why do others not have to have those principles and things work well for them? How they get all the good stuff and God's children seem to be left without. But this doctrine of Christian hope firmly placed in the heart makes us able to endure in the face of such delay. Even as Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured the shame of Egypt and the persecution of their words and the backside of a desert and 40 years of waiting after God's revelation to him before God raised him up as the leader of Israel. But he endured because he could see him who is unseen. He lived in hope. And then finally, today, we consider the cultivation of such a hope. Now, that's an overview of what we said. And some may say, Pastor, we've already heard that. Brethren, I don't care. I wanted to hear it again. And I needed to hear it again. And some of you haven't heard it. And some of you who were here didn't hear it. And the more you hear it, the better chance you'll have of cultivating it. My motive is to build up within every person that professes Christ a strong, confident hope so that this stuff that keeps setting some of you off your rail and off your track so easily won't do it anymore. I want to save myself and Pastor Sarver some counseling. I want to get to the point that some of you don't have to call just because somebody didn't smile at you and now your life was wrecked for the next four days. I don't want to have to hold your emotional hand. Not because I don't have time, I'm willing to. But I want you to grow up in hope. I want you to be able to look beyond the circumstances and not have the sour face and not be worried and not be nervous and not lose sleep. I want you to trust in God and so that everybody around you says, well, I don't know what his secret is, but he nothing rattles him. That's what I want for you. So I want to help you, if I can, to cultivate your hope. I want my own to be cultivated. It's where my life needs most to be dealt with. I need to think on things above. And I need to have the things above radically control the way I think and act below. So let me help you cultivate a hope in your otherwise trembling breast. Hope, though grounded as we have seen objectively in the word of God and in the work of Christ, is nonetheless a commodity to be increased and strengthened. Hope is objectively grounded. It is not a subjective thing out there that we sort of have as a mist. It's well grounded in the word of God and in the work finished of Christ. And yet this commodity is to be increased and strengthened into our hearts. It is not something that when we're saved in the beginning, we have in full, big, grown measure. It is an area of Christian grace that needs to be cultivated. And that's what we want to do. The basis is set and firm, but the experience the application, the enjoyment of hope are subjective and variable and need to be cultivated. It is then our duty and our privilege 
to strengthen our hope so that we may be able better to endure affliction, better to resist temptation, better to conquer apparent delays in our benefits and blessings and answered prayers, and better to incur the questions of others regarding our salvation. May God give us grace as we consider these things to strengthen the hope that is within us. How then may God's people strengthen or cultivate Christian hope? First of all, by the repudiation of earthly allurements. The negative first. By the repudiation of earthly allurements. You read in Colossians chapter 3, and I want to refer your attention again to it. Verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above. And in the second part of the verse, not on the things that are upon the earth. There's the positive and there's the negative. And the negative is do not set your mind on the things on the earth. Do not set your affections on the earth. Do not gaze upon those things as the chief object of your heart's desire. Do not let those things occupy you in the first place. Do not do so. But read down in verse 5. He elaborates this principle of not setting your heart and mind on the things on the earth. And he says, therefore, in verse 5, put to death your members which are upon the earth. Now, notice what this means, your members. It doesn't mean shoot yourself in the foot. Even Jesus uses the imagery of cutting off a right hand or plucking out a right eye in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. If your right eye is causing you to stumble on the issues of faith in Christ and obedience to Christ, your right eye is not worthy to be kept. Don't enter into to hell with both hands and both eyes. If the only way to get into heaven is to lose an eye or a hand, nothing's more important than your soul. That's the point. But he doesn't mean that you're going to get to heaven quicker by pulling out a physical eye. There are people that have taken those texts that way and they flagellate their bodies. Virtually all false religion ends up in some form of self-flagellation because there's no hope. There's no grace. There's no freedom. There's no real forgiveness. There's no mercy. So they feel that they need to help God punish themselves. Brethren, you don't need to punish yourselves. God will do all the punishing that needs to be done. One of my children made a boo-boo one day, and I rebuked him for it. And he had, what he had done is he had dropped the book on his brother's hand. And I said, don't do that. And he took the book and popped himself in the head. And I said, no, don't punish yourself. I'll, Daddy will take care of it. If I decide you need punishment, I'll do it. Don't punish yourself. Many of us in our generation punish ourselves. We think that somehow we're supposed to because some of us grew up in homes that told us we were supposed to be punished constantly. And some of us don't know the gospel well enough to overcome that. So we feel that if we can help God out a little bit, even if it's just an internal punishment of refusing to be happy, then maybe that'll atone for a few of our sins. Brethren, there's nothing further from the gospel and nothing pleases God less. God repudiates and resists such, such an approach. For you to constantly punish yourself. It's one thing to abhor yourself in repentance. It's another to take God's work into your hands and inflict punishment. That's not proper. Well, some do so. Well, this passage doesn't mean cut off literally your physical members. It's not the body parts, but it's the sin expressed in the wrong use of these body parts. These parts as they were the possession and instruments of the old man. Plucking out the right eye, cutting off the right hand means 
doing what's necessary to keep your life and body from serving the old path of sin. The lust from the heart that debases the members of your body is to be extirpated. These members of our earthly frame are not redeemed for the purpose of serving earthly ends. But your body was saved so it would serve heavenly ends. This doesn't mean the cessation of needful pleasure. Because if you look up in verses 22 through 23 of chapter 2 of Colossians, he condemns all false asceticism. He doesn't say, don't eat. The less food you eat, the holier you'll be. The less drink you drink, the holier you'll be. The most holy people live in a mountain as monks. They never touch anything. They never see people. They never do anything. They eat uh, herbs. They stay skinny and emaciated. They never speak because if they speak, they could say something wrong. That's, that's not the approach to holiness of the Bible. We're, that's condemned in chapter 2. That stuff is, those don't do any good to killing the flesh. These, there are people that don't eat, that don't drink, that never have sex with anybody. They're celibate and their hearts are rotten and filthy and they're fleshly. These things are of no value to the destruction of the flesh, we're told. So he's not saying that when he says, put to death your members on the earth. But he means use these rightful pleasures in their rightful place and in their proper amount for heavenly ends. Your body has needs. You are to meet those needs. But what for? We read it in verse in the last verse of our reading to the glory of God. The purpose of this earth for the saint is to glorify God. So you eat to the glory of God. You drink to the glory of God. Whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. And that's what the text is focusing upon. Not the flagellation of the body, but the control of the body under the overall purpose of serving Christ and glorifying God. Put to death your members on the earth. And then he begins to discuss them. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, etc., let me suggest to you that there really are three elements or three types of sin that are listed here. And you'll see them in 1 John. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes may be summarized by the word sensuality. And that's what we read in these early verses. First of all, the carnal pleasures. Fornication, verse 5. Uncleanness, passion, evil desire covetousness which is idolatry carnal pleasures and worldly goods the the flesh and the world carnal pleasures and worldly goods think of the commandments the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me covetousness is idolatry so covetousness breaks the first commandment the tenth commandment thou shalt not covet covetousness breaks the tenth commandment the, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And every one of these other things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, all of them are extrapolations and expo expositions of the violation of the seventh commandment regarding purity and sexual purity and faithfulness and single-mindedness. All of these commandments broken by these sins. Now note what he lists, the carnal pleasures, fornication. That simply is a cover word that includes all sexual sin of all kinds. Uncleanness. Literally the word means lewdness or filthiness. Vile things. Where people's fornication is so expressed that it doesn't even match up to nature. 
They do things perverted. They use the parts of their body in a way that God did not invent those parts of the body to be used. Whether in marriage or out of marriage. It doesn't matter. Lewdness. Things that just aren't right. And you know they're not right. And you can feel that they're not right if you still have a conscience. But if you don't have a conscience or if your conscience is hardened and seared, these things don't bother you at all. You want everybody to do it. So you publish books showing them how. You subsidize with tax dollars certain videos that are shown in school systems to show children the various methods by which they may employ their sexual appetites and then to show them how to do those things the safe way. That's this culture. Uncleanness. Passion. That literally means that the mind is wholly at the mercy of obscene associations, urges, and excitements. The passion here means that your mind is in the grasp of thoughts of prurient interest and you can't escape it. Everything you turn into filth. Every woman you see, you undress her. Your brain is living in passion. Everything that happens, you turn it into some sort of an imaginary pleasure. The urges and the excitements of such things lead your mind constantly to impurity. Put it away, he says. Evil desire, the next word. This literally means the sweeping, prurient feelings and longings. This is a large word that simply means that you're just... In the whole realm of the world, you, you can't get enough to eat, can't get enough to drink, can't get enough TV, you can't get enough whatever. You're just, you're just sweeping in prurient interest, and especially in the areas of sexual immorality. Now, somebody might, may be thinking, why do you harp on this so much? Brethren, I'm simply expounding the Scripture. Why does God harp on it so much? Why did the Apostle Paul bring it up almost every time he wrote a letter to a church? Why? Because it is... It is major. It is sweeping. It's everywhere. You say, well, we're not like the Roman Empire. Dear brethren, we're not far behind. We're not far behind. We have leaders today who are publicly pronounced themselves to be perverts and are proud of it and actually want subsidized taxpayer dollars to help them further their cause. Dear brethren, we're not far from Nero. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, carnal pleasures. But then the next thing was worldly goods, all under this thing of sensuality. The lust of the eye. Covetousness. You can see it. The covetous man. Let me share with you what one of the commentators said about this. It has its origin, covetousness does, in a self-seeking depravity. The covetous man is a man that really is just out for himself. That's what the real root of the problem is. He's self-centered. He's self-seeking. And its action is twofold. First of all, it shows itself in an eager, unscrupulous acquisition of things. Grabbing. You just can't keep your hands off. You've got to get more. And every chance you have, when you get an extra buck, it never occurs to you to think about a mission need or the church or somebody that needs help or your family. An extra buck, hey, I can now afford so-and-so. And off you spend it. But it always costs a little more. Then you then that buck, so you go into debt a bit to get it. Because you can't get enough. Eager, unscrupulous gaining. Unscrupulous meaning you sell your car 
and you overprice it, your used car, and you don't mention one of the things you know is going to have to be repaired in short time. It's one of the reasons you're selling it. You're sick of the problem. But you don't tell the man. He says, why do you want to sell it? Well, I'm ready to move up. You lie. The reason you want to sell it is because you don't like this car. It's not what you want anymore. And you ought to be honest and say, well, I'm tired of this car. I think I need to get a better car, a newer car, one that's not going to lose its brakes in the next two months, one that I won't have to replace a muffler. It's a good time for me to sell it. And then price it accordingly. But you use unscrupulous means to make a little extra. Don't report the exact amount you, you sold it for and let him off the sales tax hook. Tax hook. No, no, brethren. Uns- this is covetousness when that comes out. That's a revelation of covetousness. That's one side of it. The other is that the man is free in scattering and squandering his goods. He's, he's on the one hand, he loves to get it. On the other hand, he has no principles about how he spends it. He throws it after everything under the world, misuses it, and wastes it. Sometimes he, he get, loses it in the lotto. Sometimes he loses it in needless extras around the house. Sometimes his clothing, his car, his home, all sorts of testimonies to scattering and squandering. Some men don't do it in those public ways. They waste it on, on food that's not needed, on junk food, on unnecessary eating out, on frequent trips to the theater, on all sorts of expenditures that are not even able to be justified uh, by moderate people. Often, in fact, the same man who's a covetous man is also a monster of lust. You'll see the two go hand in hand often. Not always, but often. The covetous man, because he's self-seeking, also seeks other kinds of pleasures for himself. God has a way of exposing that. Deeper far is this sin than a mere miserliness or avarice. And as Bishop Trench said, the fierce and ever fiercer longing of the creature, which has turned from God to fill itself with the inferior objects of sense. This desire for more, evermore, is idolatry. As the scriptures say, when goods are increased, they are increased that get them. You know what that means? The more you get, the more you want. That's what that means. When you get more, you get bigger and you need more. Have you any, any of you noticed that? Have you ever, ever noticed that? It's, it's a rule of life. Well, this is the nature of the covetous man. He just never is satisfied. What we crave, we worship. What we worship, we make our portion. It occupies our first thought of the morning our last wish in the evening, and the action of every waking hour. That's the covetous man. Put it away. These things indulged choke off hope and gender ferocious disillusionment and despair. You see what I'm trying to say to you? When you get into this kind of thinking and living, you don't live in Christian hope. Brethren, Christian brethren and sisters, listen to me. You cannot gain in the joys and the confidence of the hope that ought to be your ordinary portion if you still have your eyes and hearts set on things in this world. Do not think that there's a magic trick shortcut by reading of a few verses and the praying of a few prayers and the coming to a few services that's going to make you enjoy the things of God and hope in Christ and have a firm set confidence in Him if you still wish that you could get a few things in this world. What I'm saying is put away... 
the longings for this world so that you can cultivate hope in Christ. You cannot have both at the same time. These will, by definition, choke off the other. Do you see it? There has to be the negative putting away before this is going to grow. Hope doesn't grow on a selfish vine. Hope doesn't grow on an earthly heart. Hope can't grow because you're looking at things you can see. You're longing for things you can feel. Your life is centered on things that are now. And that's, that's opposite to the principle of hope. Things that cannot be seen. Things that are eternal. Things that are not here. Things you can't grasp. You cultivate Christian hope by denying the lusts of the flesh and the world. No man has ever gained the world and saved his soul thereby. It's impossible. So put them away. But look at the pride of life in the next place. That's another category of sin that's listed. He goes down into verse 8 and says, Now also put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, etc. Let me go through these quickly with you. Anger. We've defined it in the past. The settled indignation in the heart bordering on revenge and showing itself in visible display. A settled indignation in the heart bordering on revenge showing itself in a visible display. Anger. That's what that word properly defined means in its original intent. It's when somebody who because he has a settled indignation against another and wishes bad on the other cannot keep himself from blurting out bad things to the other or doing bad things. It's as one child gets hit in the back in a snowball fight and although he agreed on the rules ahead of time, when he's the one that gets hit, he loses it and runs and nails another and yet it's the child, I'm not describing that once in a while event I'm describing a child who didn't like that kid anyway and hasn't liked him for a long time and always knows that's the kid that hits you in the back and the next time we play with him, if I get a chance I'm going to nail him. I put it in the mouth of a child hoping that some of you could interpret. I wish grown-ups could be as simple as snowballs. Some of your words are like ice balls. And some of the aims of your words are not designed to make us comfortable and happy. And I'm always amazed at how some of the most peace-loving people in the world are some of the most hateful and angry. And how they do so much damage to other people's hearts and don't know it. A settled indignation bordering on revenge. Wrath, what does that mean? It means the violent emotion of boiling anger within. It's boiling. It's everything you can do just to keep from belting certain people. It's, every time you see them, you just like to spit in their face. Boiling. Put it away, he says. Malice. This is, again, a status of heart. It means to be angry with somebody, wishing that they will get caught and ill will come upon them. Malice. Hoping things will go bad for them. A disposition that feels resentful that somebody else is getting by with bad. And you want them to get what's coming to them. You see, the danger of that is that you might become the one that tries to see that they get what's coming to them. You, use, you express it in various ways, but the next word, railing, helps us. It means bad-mouthing. 
yelling wrongly, riotous screaming, marching in streets demanding to be heard. Whether it's governmental or whether it's private, protesting against your authorities and their right to rule you. Exactly what has been done in recent days, which we are praising in this country, and I tell you, brethren, it is ungodly to overthrow a government. I don't care how bad the government was. I'm sorry. I don't care. And I, my heart sympathizes. Don't misunderstand this. My heart sympathizes. But when a people rise up to overthrow the constituted authority, and there may be debates in some places about what makes a constituted authority, Romans 13 is clear. God gave them the authority. We are to submit to them. I've opened up a can of worms. You're not to rail against your authorities. You're not to blaspheme your authorities. You're not to blaspheme God or his messengers to their face or behind their back. You're not to open your mouth to your husband when you're mad at him and speak harshly to him. You're not to use profanity against him. You're not to open your mouth against your parents in their presence or behind their back. You are railing, and that's the kind of stuff for which the wrath of God comes upon the world. Put it away, or this stuff called Christian hope will never be your portion. Next, he says, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Now, this includes detrimental speaking to someone else's reputation or unchaste words, profanity, questionable jokes, sarcasm. The way often that husbands and wives get at each other is not by an honest sit down, tell me, tell you what I honestly think, but by little short biting words of sarcasm hoping to get the point across. Not designed to solve the problem, just designed to pay you back verbally. Shameful speaking out of your mouth emanating from an angry disposition. And brethren, it matters not what's been done to you. This is not to be done by you. And then he says, lie not one to another. Because see, when you lie to somebody, when you stretch the truth for your own ends, when you exaggerate about another's sin to make them look bad and you look better, when you let a, an unverified piece of gossip go unchallenged and you allow some wrongly to receive opinion about another and you cultivate untruth, you do that to those for whom you have no regard or respect. You don't do that for people you respect. All the more reason why Christians have no reason ever to do anything but truth one with another. What are you saying about me as a brother in Christ? When you don't tell me the truth. You're saying you don't have much regard for me. And what does that say about you? We're members of the same body. You don't have much regard for yourself. What does it say about the truth? You don't have much regard for the truth. Put it away. Hope in Christ cannot flourish in an angry heart. And it's not unusual for the angry person, the bitter, resentful person that hasn't got his vengeance, that hasn't got justice on his side, who feels that life has passed him by and ruined him, and others got by with murder while he got blamed. It's not unusual for that person to say, I'm having a hard time reading my Bible. The Bible's not precious to me. I don't know why. 
Pastor, I've prayed. I've asked God to forgive all my sins. I've come. The Bible's a closed book. I don't enjoy preaching. I can't pray and get through past the ceiling. I'm dry. I'm dull. Brethren, sometimes it's because you've got a dull, uh, an angry heart in you. That's not the only reason for those things, but it's one reason. Don't be surprised if God withholds any hope from you, any felt hope from you, if you're living this way and thinking this way and talking this way. You can't have both. The angry man often becomes angry ultimately at God and his messengers. He finds all manner of evil and inconsistency in them, and he uses these as his excuse finally for leaving the church. Finally, it'll be God and, the, and his messengers that are the reason he left. And he'll tell other people what a dangerous thing it is to let this stuff develop. But you see, leaving the church of Christ is apostatizing and leaving your hope. And it's because these kinds of sins always lead you away from your hope. So get rid of them. Repudiate earthly things. But let me state a word of hope here. And I believe that I'm going to end at the end of this point. But let me state a word of hope to you. Notice very carefully that every exhortation in, so far in Colossians 3 are exhortations given to Christians. You know what that implies? It implies that Christians are capable of such behavior. It has to imply that. Christians can do these kinds of things. Why do I say that to you? Because I want you to understand that if you're fresh from a fight, if you're fresh from an angry outburst, if you're fresh from lying, if you're fresh from some shameful speech out of your mouth, if your conscience is smitten you, and if you feel there's no hope for you, and you can't believe you could possibly be a Christian and act that way, and if you really were saved, you wouldn't have done that thing, let me tell you, you could do that thing and be saved. Or there would be no exhortation to Christians. Notice what he says to them. You have put off, verse 9. You have put off the old man with his doings. There is the definitive, definitive radical breach with the power of sin. The saint has been regenerated. The sinner has been changed. He's now a child of God. The principle of righteousness is in his heart. So now what is he to do? Every outcropping of the remains of the old man is to be put down, put away, put to death, rid of, extirpated. He's not to allow any of the remains. He's to slay every, every time it sticks its head up, shoot it off. Every showing of his sin, put it away, repudiate it, kill it. But the hopeful thing here is, brethren, that you doesn't mean you're not saved if you, if you have that kind of outburst. Now, if, if your life is characterized by a standing pattern of anger, if your life is characterized by profaneness as the common manner of your speech, if your life is characterized by bitterness and cynicism and sarcasm, and that's the rule rather than, than the exception, and the only time you're not like that is when you're around the rest of us and you've got enough self-control to keep us from finding out what you really are, then you may not be a Christian. It may well be that you are unsaved and lost. If every time you're confronted with temptation, you fall, that may mean you don't have basic Christian power in your heart. But that's a far cry from a Christian's capability of misusing his mouth or his heart and his anger. So what do you do? Well, you don't despair if these words have smitten your conscience. That's what you don't do. You don't cast aside hope. 
These are words to saints who have been changed, who have put off the old man and his deeds. Now, what are you to do now? Continue progressively and increasingly and aggressively renewing the mind and putting away every expression of the old man. Whether it's a man who feels that it is the duty of the Christian to punish the wicked in the world and therefore, would, as some of the zealots of old, would rise up in governmental organizational riot, or whether it's a private riotous person in his own family or whatever, put it away. Put it away. Don't tuck your tail, having heard this, and say, boy, I'm guilty of everything on the list, Pastor. What's the hope for me? And then leave. You see, that's the, that's the opposite. The way you cultivate your hope is not by giving up your hope when you find out that you need hope. It's by putting away the sin that has made your hope wane. It's by putting away the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem was not the preaching you heard. The cause of the problem was the sin that the preaching exposed. Don't leave the preaching. Leave the sin. Don't leave the doctor. Don't leave the hospital. Get rid of the disease. Don't resist the surgeon's knife or the needle of sewing it up. Run to the remedy. And what is the remedy? Well, the remedy hasn't changed, has it? It's the same thing that grounds our hope in the beginning. You're guilty of this stuff. You don't cover it by seeing if you can keep us from finding out. Brethren, God's on your case. God's on your trail. God sees you, and that's what counts. You may never let... I may never find out what's going on in your heart. I'm not a fool. I know there are people that have hated me as a pastor. They never told me they did. Others told me they didn't. And I saw the way they acted toward me that it seemed to support the, the, the statement... What do I do? Is it my duty to make sure that I go assume the worst about them and jump on their case and say, how dare you? No, no. My duty is to pray for them and try to preach to them and as God gives me occasion to hope that I can get through to their conscience because their soul is what my concern is. Their words and their hate is not going to ultimately damage me while God protects me. So whoever you're angry at, it's costing you. What you do is you run from that stuff. Don't justify it. Don't cover it. Don't hide it. Don't put on the front for the church. Present yourself before God. Confess your sins. Oh, how frequently, how often my children come to me having blown it again. And how often I tell them, what is the remedy? What is the remedy? There's only one simple remedy. Run to Christ. You say, Pastor, what if they're not saved? Run to Christ. What, how do you know they're regenerate? I don't know they're regenerate. I just know the only place they'll ever have any forgiveness of sins is at Christ. And I tell them, he that comes to Christ and confesses his sins and believes on Jesus will be forgiven. And whenever they go and I hear them praying on their knees and saying, Lord, I sinned against you. Forgive me. I sinned against my daddy. Forgive me. I sinned against my sister. Forgive me. I go and I say, what has God promised to those who sincerely ask forgiveness, trusting Christ alone and leaving their sin? He forgives them. And he's just when he does it. He's righteous in doing it. It's not unfair. That sin has been put on Christ. Who among us this morning knows himself to be a sinner and wavers in his hope and wanes in his hope and has a hard time believing Jesus is coming back for him? How do you deal with that? 
You ask for God's forgiveness for the junk that has so cluttered your brain and your mind that you can't even look to the things above. You're so occupied down here, you don't seek the things above. You seek the things below. Quit doing that. Turn to God. Humble yourself before God. Fall at the foot of the cross and lay claim on the promise and the fountain open there for sin and uncleanness and rise up and ask God to give you strength and blessed power to overcome every time this stuff rises up and stay on it and stay with it and stay at it till the end and keep it up and endure it and fight it and kill it. You say, Pastor, I've been fighting one sin for 15 years. I'm still having to fight it every day. Don't you quit fighting it till you're in glory. How long do I have to do this? Until it's dead. How can I do it? By the power of a loving God who's given you all things you need to deal with your sin. And you mark my word, brethren, in the path of the repudiation of earthly lusts and earthly pleasures and earthly things, there will be room left in your heart for God's hopeful heaven to flood in. When some of you begin to say no to this world, you will notice the word of God taking on new life. And you'll notice preaching become a delight instead of a bore. You'll notice the Lord's days as we were singing in the hymn. Oh, how many more Sabbaths where our hearts are refreshed. That was the perception of Horatius Bonar. What's your perception of this day? Is it an intrusion? Does it keep you from getting a lot of stuff done in the garage that you wish you could kind of have half the day off? You have that about your tithe? Boy, honey, if we didn't pay tithes, you know how much more money we'd have a month? Yeah, I do. You'd have a whole lot more bucks that would mean a whole lot less to you. Where's your heart? If it's in the earth, you don't have any hope. But if it's in the things to come, and if it's in where Christ sits above, you'll find that that hope will begin to exude through your countenance and your behavior. I've watched some of you grow in this thing, in this area. And it seems painfully slow, doesn't it? But I've seen you grow little by little. So that if you look back five years ago, there's a lot less of that angry young woman or angry young man that there used to be. There's a lot less of that frustration and that discouragement and that despair and that negativeness. It's, it's leaving. Why? Because you continue to heed the Word of God. You continue to mortify sin by the grace of God. You continue to take seriously the promises of God. Brethren, that's the path. You've got to get rid of some of the things you're longing for. If your heart is set on getting a wife or a husband, if your heart is set on a job or money, if your heart is set on anything in this earth, to that degree, your heart is not going to be able to be set on the things above. And to that proportion, you're going to be absent Christian hope. That's what I'm saying. There's a connection. Therefore, put away. Since you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God, Get rid of the stuff that keeps you focused here and do the things that focus you there. And you do that and you'll see the blessing of hope flourishing increasingly in your heart. Oh, may God own his word to saints and sinners alike. Let us bow together. Our Father, we pray that you would take this meager effort of a sinner and that you would use the words to rebuke, to exhort, to reprove, that you would teach and heal and restore, convict and give comfort. We are aware, O oh Lord, that some may wonder how there could be comfort in the preaching of negatives, in the preaching of the mortification of sin. 
We trust, O oh God, that you would help them to hear that we pointed them to Christ and we told them where the remedy was, that in the denial of their pride, the pride of life that resents people, that hates others, that sets themselves up on top, that they fail to worship the God who made them and humbled themselves before him. We're told in the text to be thankful. Forgive us when we've griped and complained and been resentful. Lord, save us and rescue us from this, this pit, this mire of this rotten heart. And help us to lay hold on the things in heaven. Lord, may every person in this church be granted by your spirit the skill increasingly of setting the affections on things above and not on things below. And may we be a church that exhibits to this world a, a life and countenance that shows confidence and hope and peace and joy rather than the defeat and the complaining that's so often our portion. Forgive us and deliver us. For our hope is in your power and your promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.